listening to Fox Sports Radio. Radio. The 76ers lose at home. 103-96 was the final. The Atlanta Hawks advance the five seed in the Eastern Conference. They are on to take on the Milwaukee Bucks, and we'll get into that series and its conclusion against Brooklyn later on. But Philadelphia, the story of the NBA world, the one seed in the East, are going home after round two. Okay, so the obvious part, as you said, going home, it seems to me it's obvious, but let's start with this. Do you agree with me, Jonas, that Embiid uh, played exceptionally well overall? You can sit and say, oh, you know, a lot of turnovers uh, the last two games. I think it was eight in each, and that's an unusual number. other people would counter and say, yeah, but as much as was being asked to him, it's a reasonable number of mistakes. Personally, overall, I think that if all you cared about was Embiid, that you'd come in or you'd leave these playoffs with more optimism, more belief in Embiid than you had entering the playoffs, even though obviously for Philly, a, a very disappointing result. Do you agree with Embiid being a positive? Yeah, no, positive. The only question mark would be the injuries, but, you know, that's I don't think you can really, you know, look at that and go, oh, well, that that means I have no faith in him moving forward. He's dealt with injuries, but the fact that he came back, played through it, and still played at a pretty high level uh, in these games, uh, yeah, I would be pretty happy with Joel Embiid right now. Though in hindsight, the question that we were raising with uh, pretty strong kind of disbelief was for a guy that was hurt with the meniscus uh, for an injury that no one seemed to have a straight answer, but it seems like every minute on the floor was a potential of a re-injury. And then at some point it feels like he re-hurt that because in the second halves of games after that, uh, when he seemingly tweaked it, he dropped off significantly. Whereas the question we were raising was he was playing late into some of those earlier games when the game itself seemed to be already decided. There really was the question of what was he and in hindsight, it seems even more pronounced. What was he doing late in those games playing? Yeah, I, that's. I mean, we talked about it. It just it was a little puzzling that he was out there. But I just think this was about him making a statement. Uh, he's dealt with the injury issues and the question marks before. He saw the criticism Anthony Davis got by a lot of people in the way that that injury was handled and the way that he wasn't available at certain points. And I just think he wanted to make a statement and let everybody know this idea that I'm not going to be out there competing even at less than 100 percent is not the case. And I think he wanted to get out there and prove people wrong. And I don't think it made the difference, but boy, it, it makes you wonder, you know, was that a less was that a message that maybe was a false message? Because in truth, the message he was trying to make seemed to have led or maybe likely contributed to his inability to play well late. Who knows, though? Um, ben Simmons. One thing that strikes me right off the go is here's a guy, a max contract, effectively, that they're really saying Oh, what could we get? You know, it was like James Harden. He was going to be the centerpiece of a deal potentially with Harden before the Brooklyn trade, you know, Houston to Brooklyn. And now they're saying, well, could he maybe CJ McCollum and maybe, you know, there's these other people. And it's like the the basic assumption is that, that Ben Simmons with a max contract is still an asset. That 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 because if you think about it in the NBA, it's like it's not when they talk about let's rank the players. 
it's all relative to their contract, right? There might be a guy that's at a reasonable $4 million a year that is super, super coveted because at $4 million a year, that guy is really good, though that same contract as a $34 million max level kind of deal in that range might have a negative value. It might have to be you have to include a number one pick. Like with Kemba, they had to include some assets to get rid of the contract. But – does it surprise you that Ben Simmons right now is still considered, even at a max deal, to be a positive asset that's worth more, that he's worth more in a given year than the max? I don't know how this postseason helped their well, no, their, yeah. their, flex, their ability to get a ton for Ben Simmons. I mean, if you really had questions about Ben Simmons, and, and look, Charles Barkley made the point, th- these concerns have been out there for years now. This isn't just that it was, you know, this postseason he dealt with this. These concerns concerns about his inability to shoot and his inability to be effective on offense have been out there for years. If that's the case, I mean, you should have done this deal before this postseason. He shouldn't have been on, on the roster, but it feels like maybe they waited a little bit too long and his flaws got exposed on the big, biggest stage of his career with no LeBron and none of these other powerhouse teams to be able to take the you know some of the attention away and cover up. He was on the biggest stage in standalone games and all his flaws were on center stage. I don't know how that helps you in, in trying to get facilitate a trade and get the most for your value. Yeah. Yeah, and and the given is it doesn't. I, it strikes me that 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 the, the Barkley take is it, it's it seems to be more than that, which is uh, a year ago, and, and and maybe some people were even more skeptical than what I'm going to say. But a year ago, it was like, could a guy that is a really good defender, you know, on the wing, one of the best defenders, and this year, you know, Simmons achieved that also. Um, could he be a number two on a championship team when he can't really initiate his own shot in the playoffs super well? Right? You don't want he's not going to be running the offense through him, uh, initiating if Embiid's on the bench. Let's say that seemed to be the question. Now the question is, can Ben Simmons literally score? That like it, 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 the fact that and there's various stats on this. One I tweeted out was. In the fourth quarter of the last four games, so effectively a full game of basketball, but it would be the fourth quarter in the last four games, four quarters in total, Ben Simmons' field goal attempts were zero. So he played an entire game during crunch time, in theory, four fourth quarters, and he didn't literally didn't try a shot. And... Evident of that was the seemingly dunk he had, yeah. and he and he makes a complicated pass. Like to me, to not be a fill up the stat sheet score is a question very different than why w- why won't this guy dunk the basketball <laughs> late in the game. Yeah, no, it, look, it's one thing, uh, to your point, if, if he just looks at it and goes, I want to be a pass-first guy, I get all that. But at, at a certain point, that can be a detriment and it's a detriment when you're right there at the basket with an opportunity to have a to get a dunk and instead you give the ball up and you've got people inside the arena looking around going seriously like that was really the microcosm of his series it just seemed like as the pressure kept mounting he wanted no part of it there was the same conversation we were having about Giannis to where the game they lost at Brooklyn where they turned the ball over one of the thoughts was well Giannis was you know fumbling the ball 
around because he didn't want to get fouled and have to go to the foul line. Like that, like so he was he was nervous about that moment. Simmons seemed like his was much worse than than Giannis because he didn't want the basketball at all. Like he had no interest in scoring, and it was almost to the detriment of his team. And I think his coach, I think his probably his teammates, they they were looking at him a little bit differently, especially after Game Seven and especially after that dunk moment. Well, yeah, to the point of, I mean, if you look at the two most important Sixers right now, and let's uh, put Doc Rivers at the top of that list with Embiid, and Doc Rivers, you know, he was asked, can Simmons be a point guard on a title team? And his quote was, I don't know the answer to that question right now. To me, that's a fair answer. But boy, oh boy, that is a, a harsh answer uh, to, to not even with lip service be backing up Simmons and then you look at Embiid and this was you know made the rounds also when he says I thought the turning point was when we I don't know how to say it when we had an open shot and we made just one free throw which was the exact dunking play that we're talking about and I don't know if Embiid's been quietly sticking, you know, the knife in Simmons whenever he had a chance over these years. You, you know, you hear about the clogging the middle. You don't know what he's thinking. But I never saw outwardly. Uh, let's just say this. If I didn't see the game, if I didn't see the result and I only saw that quote. And I knew it was, you know, it was clearly about Simmons. I'd say I knew that hearing it, I would think, what the heck happened in this game? Right. <laughs> so I mean, uh, in a way, if if you were, uh, if you fell asleep a week ago when the, you know, the Sixers were up two to one and they had the long weekend in Atlanta before that Monday game, uh, and then you would think, what could happen in the next eight days or so that would be like a movie version? Of quite like about Simmons and the troubles just being like, man, this is like the movie went south. It was like as bad as it could get. I'm not sure you could have dreamt this up. As bad as it's been the last seven or eight days for Simmons, and let me just ask you, could what could you have imagined if I would have told you that this level was going to happen of trouble for his underperformance? He he's not going to shoot. Oh, in the next four games, he's not going to shoot one shot in the fourth quarter, one field goal attempt. He's going to give up a dunk. Like if I would have rattled this stuff off, it's almost unbelievable. Yeah, th- this is as bad as it could possibly be, and especially if you're a Sixers fan to get your hopes up to see how they performed in game six on the road and then thinking, okay, well, now we're going back home. Uh, we've got, you know, seemingly the advantages at home and, uh, and, and, you know, hopefully we can survive and advance. And then you deal with whoever you get out of the Brooklyn Milwaukee series to come up this short. And it just felt like, and we, we talked about this, like it felt like late in games, Atlanta had nothing but confidence, and Philly was really struggling. Like, and I don't know if it was a confidence thing or a fatigue thing, but you could just tell that when games were close late, Atlanta had the ability to go take that game away, and Philadelphia couldn't answer at home or on the road. I agree with you. Straight out of Vegas. Be sure to catch live editions of Straight Out of Vegas weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Okay, check this out and just listen to this. It's almost unbelievable. So if you go back to 2005 and you say, all right, how many Game 7s have there been? So there's now been 60 Game 7s, okay, since 2005 in the NBA, any round of the playoffs. 
and you say, how's the home teams do? Because home game seven, you hear that historically. That's what you want. That's what you play the season for. The home court only really matters in the seventh game. Because if you think about it, if it goes six, you've had three and three. So literally that extra home game matters if you play the seventh. So in those games, how many home teams got beat and got beat badly? There's been four home teams that were beat by more than 10 points. So 60 of them played Game 7. Four times the home team lost by more than 10 points. These are the situations. The 2005 Boston Celtics lost by 27 versus Indiana. The 2009 Boston team, this is the second worst, lost by 19 at home versus Orlando. 2019... Clippers lost by 15 versus Denver. And finally, of the worst losses, the 2016 Clippers lost by 13 versus Utah. So let's see here. I did all right on the SAT. Let's see if I see a pattern. 2005 Boston. Who coached? All right, Doc. 2009 Boston. So five and nine. Yep, Doc. 2019 Clippers. Well, Doc was gone. No, no, he was there, Doc. (laughs) And the 2016 Clippers lost by 13 to Utah. Doc, the four worst losses for a home team in Game 7 in the NBA since 2005 all were coached, the losing team, by Doc Rivers. Jonas. Is that even believable? It's uh, yeah. There, there's a common theme there. there there's, there's <laughs> and it doesn't. Thread, this, yeah. I don't want to say to Philly, and we're on in Philly that hey, this wasn't even a bad one. But imagine that this was his best game seven home loss. We were talking to um, Anthony Gargano, who's a Fox Sports Radio host, and he's been doing Philly sports radio for years and years. And he made the point that, you know, what other coach in a game seven is playing 10 guys? Usually you shrink the, you shrink your lineup because you want your best possible players in there, which is why you saw Durant as tired as he was in, in game seven and those Milwaukee Bucks players as tired as they were. And yet it's Doc Rivers and he's he's got a full blown rotation like he would have during a normal regular season game. And then to see what has happened with Ty Lu being able to get the Clippers over the hump by making adjustments in game, it just as much as Doc can maybe throw Ben Simmons under the bus, I mean there's a lot of people giving Doc the side eye today. Yeah, and the irony to the Clippers and Lou was he did play a ton of players, and he did so again on you know game one against Phoenix, and it was a brilliant move, I think, because what it did in the prior round against Utah was it allowed him to try enough combinations to arrive at one that even without Kawhi, they were able to go small and beat Utah in a way that exposed Gobert's limitations, even as Defensive Player of the Year, when they had five shooters on the floor. So the only way he got to that lineup was through his experiment, experimenting. That seems to be like, what well, Doc's right then. But the theory is, as the series progresses, you're supposed to figure out. And again, I, Doc has forgotten more basketball than I know. But somehow, some way, all that basketball is leading him to be very different in some ways, like you said, than conventional coaches. And the results haven't been strong. Straight out of Vegas! Be sure to catch live editions of Straight Out of Vegas weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. 
Hey, it's Ben, host of the Fifth Hour with Ben Maller, along with my trusty sidekick, David Gascon. Would mean a lot to have you join us on our weekly auditory journey. You're asking, what in God's name is the Fifth Hour? I'll tell you, it's a spinoff of the Ben Maller Show, a cult hit overnights on FSR. Why should you listen? Picture, if you will, a world where we chat with captains of industry in media, sports, and more every week. Explore some amazing facts about human nature and more. Listen to the Fifth Hour with Ben Maller on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Look, people can point to the injuries all they want. I think this playoff is going to be a matter of who's the healthiest team when it's all said and done. Milwaukee was the healthier team. They benefited from a, a, a less than 100% James Harden, obviously Kyrie Irving not being there. And they ended up getting it done after a lot of criticism in overtime. It felt like the final shot for Durant in overtime I, I think he knew that they didn't have another overtime left in him, and I don't think he was playing. He was going for the tie. I think he was going to try and end it there. And I actually think, based on the way that they performed in the lone overtime, and the fact that I think they only scored two points mm-hmm. in, the, yeah. in that and overtime, the, the first two bo- the first two points too. Yeah, and then and then it was nothing after that. I, I think the reason why Durant was so frustrated at the end of regulation, the fact that he had you know two inches over, uh, you know, from being a three as opposed to a two was because I think that was his same approach. He realized they were exhausted. They needed to try and end it there if they could. And unfortunately, they were two inches away from doing so. You know, that's interesting. Of all the analysis I heard, uh, Bill Simmons was the only other person I heard say that, and he agreed with you 100%. So uh, now the question to me, and that's Jonas Knox, we are straight out of Vegas, is does this slay the dragon uh, or the demon, let's say, of Milwaukee in the playoffs and, and Giannis and his ability to go all the way, but I think obviously not. They've made the conference finals before. That was the toughest team they could face, but I think the Demons might still be ahead for Milwaukee. Even so, they are the favorite right now to win the NBA title. Milwaukee is plus 110, and then I'm going to run down the favorites here, and then uh, McKenzie's going to give us the actual series prices. We've got the Suns are next, the second favorite at plus 140. And then there's a big drop. The Clippers are eight and a half to one. And Atlanta is 11 to one. Now, Atlanta was 200 to one in March. So wow. this is a heck of a long shot, but still 11 to one. Milwaukee, the clear favorite, a bigger favorite to win the title than even Phoenix. It's up 1-0 in the series already. But here's the thing is if you look at Clippers and the Suns, is if you look at the current number, it is the uh, Suns who are minus 425. Now, let's think about this. In general, if Kawhi were healthy and Paul and Chris Paul were playing, which, you know, you uh, would have expected coming in before any injuries or whatever. Yeah. You'd have to say Phoenix is about an even team, even though they had a better record. The Clippers were considered to be as good as a Phoenix. In fact, if you look at it, the Clippers were considered to be as good as Utah. They had a better record than Phoenix when everyone was healthy coming in. And what's surprising is, or what really tells you about Kawhi, the reality of Kawhi, is the idea that the Jazz, when they had won game one, were minus 200. And the idea that now... Phoenix wins game one and it's minus 425. It shows you Vegas doesn't believe Kawhi is coming back and it's built into the odds. 
Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And also, just coming into this series, if Kawhi were healthy, I'd feel like there would be more momentum on the side of the Clippers just from the standpoint that they took out the number one seed, that Utah was the number one seed in the, in the overall playoffs. You know, Phoenix, great, great series against the Lakers. But if we want to, you know, nitpick what they did, there were injuries that were an issue with the Lakers. And then Denver was dealing with, still dealing with the loss of Jamal Murray, and they fell apart. The Clippers, you can look at it and go, all right, well, they got back into the series against Dallas they figured that out and then they were able to take care of business against Utah who was the number one seed out west it felt like there would have been more momentum on the side of the Clippers but the Kawhi injury I think is this is telling that he's not going to be back the odds are saying strongly Kawhi will not play in this series Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.